Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 5, The Lamp of Life, Part 1. 1. Among the countless analogies by which the nature and relations of the human soul are illustrated in the material creation, none are more striking than the impressions inseparably connected with the active and dormant states of matter. I have elsewhere endeavoured to show that no inconsiderable part of the essential characters of beauty depended on the expression of vital energy in organic things or on the subjection to such energy of things naturally passive and powerless i need not here repeat of what was then advanced more than the statement which i believe will meet with general acceptance that things in other respects alike as in their substance or uses or outward forms are noble or ignoble in proportion to the fullness of the life which either they themselves enjoy or of whose action they bear the evidence, as sea-sands are made beautiful by their bearing the seal of the motions of the waters. And this is especially true of all objects which bear upon them the impress of the highest order of creative life, that is to say, of the mind of man. They become noble or ignoble in proportion to the amount of energy of that mind which has visibly been employed upon them but most peculiarly and imperatively does the rule hold with respect to the creations of architecture which being properly capable of no other life than this and being not essentially composed of things pleasant in themselves as music of sweet sounds or paintings of fair colours but of inert substance depend for their dignity and pleasurableness in the utmost degree upon the vivid expression of the intellectual life which has been concerned in their production. 2. Now in all other kind of energies except that of man's mind, there is no question as to what is life and what is not. Vital sensibility, whether vegetable or animal, may indeed be reduced to so great feebleness as to render its existence a matter of question, but when it is evident at all, it is evident as such. There is no mistaking any imitation or pretense of it for the life itself. No mechanism nor galvanism can take its place, nor is any resemblance of it so striking as to involve even hesitation in the judgment. Although many occur which the human imagination takes pleasure in exalting, without for an instant losing sight of the real nature of the dead thing it animates, but rejoicing rather in its own excessive life, which puts gesture into clouds, and joy into waves, and voices into rock. 3. But when we begin to be concerned with the energies of man, we find ourselves instantly dealing with a double creature. Most of his being seems to have a fictitious counterpart, which it is at his peril if he do not cast off and deny. Thus he has a true and false, otherwise called a living and dead, or a feigned or unfeigned faith. He has a true and a false hope, a true and a false charity, and finally 
a true and a false life. His true life is like that of lower organic beings, the independent force by which he moulds and governs external things. It is a force of assimilation which converts everything around him into food or into instruments, and which, however humbly or obediently it may listen to or follow the guidance of superior intelligence, never forfeits its own authority as a judging principle, as a will capable either of obeying or rebelling. His false life is, indeed, but one of the conditions of death or stupor, but it acts even when it cannot be said to animate, and is not always easily known from the true. It is that life of custom and accident in which many of us pass much of our time in the world, that life in which we do what we have not purposed, and speak what we do not mean, and assent to what we do not understand, that life which is overlaid by the weight of things external to it, and is moulded by them instead of assimilating them. That which instead of growing and blossoming under any wholesome dew, is crystallized over with it, as with hoar-frost, and becomes to the true life what an arborescence is to a tree, a candied agglomeration of thoughts and habits foreign to it, brittle, obstinate, and icy, which can neither bend nor grow, but must be crushed and broken to bits if it stand in our way. All men are liable to be, in some degree, frost-bitten in this sort. All are partly encumbered and crusted over with idle matter. Only if they have real life in them, they are always breaking this bark away in noble rents until it becomes like the black strips upon the birch-tree, only a witness of their own inward strength. But with all the efforts that the best men make, much of their being passes in a kind of dream, in which they indeed move and play their parts sufficiently to the eyes of their fellow-dreamers, but have no clear consciousness of what is around them or within them, blind to the one insensible to the other. Nofroy. I would not press the definition into its darker application to the dull heart and heavy ear. I have to do with it only as it refers to the too frequent condition of natural existence, whether of nations or individuals, settling commonly upon them in proportion to their age. The life of a nation is usually like the flow of a lava stream, first bright and fierce, then languid and covered, at last advancing only by the tumbling over and over of its frozen blocks. And that last condition is a sad one to look upon. All the steps are marked most clearly in the arts, and in architecture more than in any other, for it being especially dependent, as we have just said, on the warmth of the true life, is also peculiarly sensible of the hemlock cold of the false. And I do not know anything more oppressive when the mind is once awakened to its characteristics than the aspect of a dead architecture. The feebleness of childhood is full of promise and of interest, the struggle of imperfect knowledge full of energy and continuity. 
but to see impotence and rigidity settling upon the form of the developed man, to see the types which once had the dye of thought struck fresh upon them, worn flat by overuse, to see the shell of the living creature in its adult form, when its colors are faded and its inhabitant perished. This is a sight more humiliating, more melancholy than the vanishing of all knowledge and the return to confessed and helpless infancy. Nay, it is to be wished that such return were always possible. There would be hope if we could change palsy into puerility, but I know not how far we can become children again and renew our lost life. The stirring which has taken place in our architectural aims and interests within these few years is thought by many to be full of promise. I trust it is, but it has a sickly look to me. I cannot tell whether it be indeed a springing of seed or a shaking among bones, and I do not think the time will be lost which I ask the reader to spend in the inquiry. How far all that we have hitherto ascertained or conjectured to be the best in principle may be formally practised without the spirit or the vitality which alone could give it influence, value, or delightfulness. 4. Now in the first place, and this is rather an important point, it is no sign of deadness in a present art that it borrows or imitates, but only if it borrows without paying interest or if it imitates without choice. The art of a great nation which is developed without any acquaintance with nobler examples than its own early efforts furnish, exhibits always the most consistent and comprehensible growth, and, perhaps, is regarded usually as peculiarly venerable in its self-origination. But there is something to my mind more majestic yet in the life of an architecture like that of the Lombards, rude and infantine in itself, and surrounded by fragments of a nobler art, of which it is quick in admiration and ready in imitation, and yet so strong in its own new instincts that it reconstructs and rearranges every fragment that it copies or borrows into harmony with its own thoughts. A harmony at first disjointed and awkward, but completed, in the end, and fused into perfect organization, all the borrowed elements being subordinated to its own primal, unchanged life. I do not know any sensation more exquisite than the discovering of the evidence of this magnificent struggle into independent existence. The detection of the borrowed thoughts, nay, the finding of the actual blocks and stones carved by other hands and in other ages wrought into the new walls, with a new expression and purpose given to them like the blocks of unsubdued rocks, to go back to our former simile, which we find in the heart of the lava current. Great witnesses to the power which has fused all but those calcined fragments into the mass of its homogeneous fire. 5. It will be asked, how is imitation to be rendered healthy and vital? Unhappily, while it is easy to enumerate the signs of life, it is impossible to define or to communicate life. And while every intelligent writer on art 
has insisted on the difference between the copying found in an advancing or resident period. None have been able to communicate in the slightest degree the force of vitality to the copyist over whom they might have influence. Yet it is at least interesting, if not profitable, to note that two very distinguishing characters of vital imitation are its frankness and its audacity. Its frankness is especially singular. There is never any effort to conceal the degree of the sources of its borrowing. Raphael carries off a whole figure from Masaccio, or borrows an entire composition from Perugino, with as much tranquillity and simplicity of innocence as a young Spartan pickpocket. And the architect of a Romanesque basilica gathered his columns and capitals where he could find them, as an ant picks up sticks. There is at least a presumption, when we find this frank acceptance, that there is a sense within the mind of power capable of transforming and renewing whatever it adopts, and too conscious, too exalted, to fear the accusation of plagiarism, too certain that it can prove and has proved its independence to be afraid of expressing its homage to what it admires in the most open and indubitable way and the necessary consequence of this sense of power is the other sign I have named, the audacity of treatment when it finds treatment necessary, the unhesitating and sweeping sacrifice of precedent where precedent becomes inconvenient. For instance, in the characteristic forms of Italian Romanesque, in which the hypathral portion of the heathen temple was replaced by the towering nave, and where in consequence... The pediment of the west front became divided into three portions, of which the central one, like the apex of a ridge of sloping strata, lifted by a sudden fault, was broken away from and raised above the wings. There remained at the extremities of the aisles two triangular fragments of pediment, which could not now be filled by any of the modes of decoration adapted for the unbroken space, and the difficulty became greater when the central portion of the front was occupied by columnar ranges, which could not without painful abruptness terminate short of the extremities of the wings. I know not what expedient would have been adopted by architects who had much respect for precedent under such circumstances, but it certainly would not have been that of the Pisan, to continue the range of columns into the pedimental space, shortening them to its extremity until the shaft of the last column vanished altogether, and there remained only its capital resting in the angle on its basic plinth. I raise no question at present whether this arrangement be graceful or otherwise. I allege it only as an instance of boldness, almost without a parallel, casting aside every received principle that stood in its way, and struggling through every discordance and difficulty to the fulfillment of its own instincts. 6. Frankness, however, is in itself no excuse for repetition nor audacity for innovation when the one is indolent and the other unwise. Nobler and surer signs of vitality must be sought, signs independent alike of the decorative or original character of the style, and constant in every style that is determinately progressive. Of these, 
one of the most important i believe to be a certain neglect or contempt of refinement in execution or at all events a visual subordination of execution to conception commonly involuntary but not unfrequently intentional this is a point however on which while i speak confidently i must at the same time reservedly and carefully as there would otherwise be much chance of my being dangerously misunderstood it has been truly observed and well stated by lord lindsay that the best designers of italy were also the most careful in their workmanship and that the stability and finish of their masonry mosaic or other work whatsoever were always perfect in proportion to the apparent improbability of the great designers condescending to the care of details among us so despised not only do i fully admit and reassert this most important fact but i would insist upon perfect and most delicate finish in its right place as a characteristic of all the highest schools of architecture as much as it is those of painting but on the other hand as perfect finish belongs to the perfected art a progressive finish belongs to the progressive art and i do not think that any more fatal sign of a stupor or numbness settling upon that undeveloped art could possibly be detected than that it had been taken aback by its own execution and that the workmanship had gone ahead of the design while even in my admission of absolute finish in the right place as an attribute of the perfected school i must reserve to myself the right of answering in my own way the two very important questions what is finish and what is its right place seven but in illustrating either of these points we must remember that the correspondence of workmanship with thought is in its extant examples interfered with by the adoption of the designs of an advanced period by the workmen of a rude one all the beginnings of christian architecture are of this kind and the necessary consequence is of course an increase of the visible interval between the power of realization and the beauty of the idea we have at first an imitation almost savage in its rudeness of a classical design as the art advances the design is modified by a mixture of gothic grotesqueness and the execution more complete until a harmony is established between the two in which balance they advance to new perfection now during the whole period in which the ground is being recovered there will be found in the living architecture marks not to be mistaken of intense impatience a struggle towards something unattained which causes all minor points of handling to be neglected and a restless disdain of all qualities which appear either to confess contentment or to require a time and care which might be better spent and exactly as a good and earnest student of drawing will not lose time in ruling lines of finishing backgrounds about studies which while they have answered his immediate purpose he knows to be imperfect and inferior to what he will do hereafter so the vigor of a true school of early architecture which is either working under the influence of high example or which is itself in a state of rapid development is very curiously traceable among other signs in the contempt of exact symmetry and measurement which in dead architecture 
are the most painful necessities. 8. In plate 12, figure 1, I have given a most singular instance both of rude execution and defied symmetry. In the little pillar and spandrel from a panel decoration under the pulpit of St. Mark's at Venice. The imperfection, not, not merely simplicity, but actual rudeness and ugliness of the leaf ornament will strike the eye at once. This is general in works of the time, but it is not so common to find a capital which has been so carelessly cut. Its imperfect volutes being pushed up one side far higher than on the other, and contracted on that side, an additional drill hole being put in to fill the space. Besides this, the member A of the mouldings is a roll where it follows the arch, and a flat fillet at A, the one being slurred into the other at the angle B, and finally stopped short altogether at the other side by the most uncourteous and remorseless interference of the outer moulding. And in spite of all this, the grace, proportion, and feeling of the whole arrangement are so great that in its place it leaves nothing to be desired. All the science and symmetry in the world could not beat it. In figure 4 I have endeavoured to give some idea of the execution of the subordinate portions of a much higher work, the pulpit of Sant'Andrea at Pistoia by Niccolò Pisano. It is covered with figure sculptures, executed with great care and delicacy. But when the sculptor came to the simple arch mouldings, he did not choose to draw the eye to them by over-precision of work or over-sharpness of shadow. The section adopted, K, M, is peculiarly simple, and so slight and obtuse in its recessions as never to produce a sharp line, and it is worked with what at first appears slovenliness, but it is in fact sculptural sketching, exactly correspondent to a painter's light execution of a background. The lines appear and disappear again, and are sometimes deep, sometimes shallow, sometimes quite broken off and the recession of the cusp joins that of the external arch at N in the most fearless defiance of all mathematical laws of curvilinear contact. End of chapter 5, part 1 Recording by Todd Albrecht